Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily. This is Trevor Hall, and it has finally arrived. The moment we've all been waiting for. Mining Stock Daily's 10 special. That's right. I know. We've all been waiting in anticipation the entire week. Uh, but really, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I've had two great conversations I'm going to share with you all about 10. And each conversation I'm going to share with you when I was having it blew me away. It's incredible. Not only the history of the metal and how it has been used for geopolitical tensions, but also like how we got to this point where we are now with the metal. Just extraordinary. Uh, we're going to be welcoming Mark Thompson and also another uh, young retail investor. His name is Emil Bakke. I apologize for the pronunciation. Uh, Swedish gentleman living in London, uh, and uh, but just two great, wonderful discussions. Can't wait to share it with you. Special thank you to our sponsors, Integra Resources, Western Copper and Gold, Corvus Gold, and Rio 2. We couldn't do this without you. Please go to miningstockdaily.com. Take a peruse through all of our sponsors. This week's past episodes, there was a lot to go through, obviously. A lot of volatility in the markets, especially in the precious metals, but... Uh, I feel a little bit optimistic, everybody. It's feeling pretty good about it where we're at now. All right. We're going to launch the conversation with Mark and then turn my into my second conversation with Emil. It, listen to the whole thing. It's going to be amazing. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. Welcome in to the first segment of Mining Stock Daily's very first 10 special. Uh, we are going to jump right into the conversation uh, with a connection I have made uh, on the Twitter, and that's Mr. Mark Thompson. Now, Mark uh, is based out of the UK, uh, but he wears many different hats. He's got a, quite an interesting background. Uh, so we, before we get into kind of his exposure to the tin industry and then kind of expanding throughout the metals complex, uh, Mark, we'd like to welcome you to Mining Stock Daily. Thanks for joining us. No, you're more than welcome. Uh, just for an introduction, uh, we'd love to get a little bit of a background into uh, who you are and your career and kind of how you found yourself where you're at now. Oh, well, it's a, it's a sorry tale going back to uh, the mid-1990s. But uh, basically, I started my career in banking, um, Deutsche Bank and Rothschilds, working on um, commodity derivatives trading. I used to be... Uh, fairly substantial um, copper options, uh, well, all based metal options, bullion options, trader, market maker. Um, but really, I suppose the interesting bit starts in 2001 when I was a relatively early employee at a, uh, a trading company called Trafigura, which is now one of the world's largest uh, trading companies. Uh, and I moved there with my very good friend, Jeremy Weir, who's now the executive chairman there. We were both at Rothschilds together. And we moved there to set up all the um, derivatives trading, hedging on the physical activities and uh, proprietary trading. And then after a couple of years of um, quite substantial success in the prop trading there, we launched a hedge fund called Galena Asset Management, took that to about a billion dollars under management, uh, returning 20% per annum uh, to our investors for the four years that I ran that fund. Uh, and then 2008, I moved uh, into the private equity sphere, joined a very, very large PE firm called uh, Apollo Management in the US. 
Uh, unfortunately, I started there five weeks before Lehman Brothers went down. Um, so the plans that I was we we had together were really curtailed by the uh, the firefighting that was going on across the global financial world. And then I sort of decided I was going to make a complete career change in 2010, and I was going to move away from sitting behind a desk and uh, trading metal derivatives um, into uh, getting into exploration, mining side, project development, uh, and learning a completely new discipline. And it's something I've very much enjoyed. I've had spectacular failures uh, in the middle of a couple of spectacular successes, um, but throughout the whole way, I've had a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, just because, uh, you know, the derivatives market, specifically in the metals, is just always an ongoing conversation. Uh, based on your experience, you know, has there anything that's really changed in the derivatives market, particular to the metals sector, that uh, now that maybe wouldn't have happened 20 years ago? Yeah, look, a lot of the business has gone to China. Um, you know, the Shanghai Futures Exchange is gobbling up even more of the market share. Uh, than the London Metal Exchange. London Metal Exchange used to be 95, 98% market share. That's rapidly been eroding. Um, the regulatory regime for banks has driven them away from a capital perspective from getting involved in commodities. Um, and, you know, and 10 years of low prices and pretty low volatility has driven a lot of players out of the space as well, as has the amount of money that was lost from the kind of long-only allocations that were made in 07, 06, 07, 08. To the sector, you know, there was probably a, you know, I don't know, throw out, pick out a number of trillion dollars of investment money thrown at the commodity sector on the last uh, massive um, super cycle, and it probably lost half that's money over three or four years of being invested. So there's been a, a complete disinterest in the sector from what I would call the real money space for the last ten years, and that's one of the drivers of what's going on right now. You know, if you don't uh, if you don't fund exploration. Um, there's some inevitable consequences. If you don't look, you don't find. If you don't find, you can't build. And if you don't build, you run out. And that's part of the perfect storm that's going on right now on the supply side is we don't have enough capacity right now for demand. And new capacity pipeline is looking pretty thin going forward for the next uh, 10 or 15 years. And that's not just with tin. I mean, we're going to talk a lot about tin, but we're talking kind of a long breadth of metals here. Uh, I mean, look, it's across the board. I mean, and even the, you know, copper's always going to get money um, because of what it is, but even that's got a, you know, a supply pipeline, which is, is looking pretty thin. Lead, zinc, um, you know, you can look at other, every commodity, you know, vanadium, tung uh, tungsten, you know, everything that I get involved in. Um, I'm, I'm just super bullish. I'm more, you know, I was one of the big believers uh, and big people to get positioned for the last super, super cycle. You know, when copper was at uh, 1360 uh, in 2001, which is pretty much the low, I was one of the guys talking six, seven, eight thousand dollar copper, and everyone was smirking and laughing. You know, um, it was all there laid out. You know, a decade of underinvestment, changing technology, new uses, China super cycle, um, and you look at it right now, and it feels so similar. The you know, the just. You know, the median fund in the world's allocation to commodities today is still zero. No one's in this space. Inventories globally are, you know, you know, pretty much zero, and we're just starting. I mean, I, I can't quite believe we're starting a super cycle in commodities with no stock. I mean, the price potential on so many commodities is just astronomical. Have we have we gotten to this place because you know the prices were so subdued over the last 
you know, eight years or so that it just didn't make a lot of these projects economic at all. So why even bother? So now that we've got a supply crunch on many of these metals, some of these projects that were once uneconomic are now looking a little bit juicy. Yeah, look, there's a lot. There's a lot of other things here as well. I mean, if you go back to the '80s and '90s, that that risk, really risky part of uh, of capital of part of people's portfolios was either in biotech or commodities exploration, and that kind of risk part of your portfolio has been consumed by tech and Bitcoin. So you really haven't had the allocations to to metals exploration that you need to have. You know, a couple of thousand companies out there around the world looking for new deposits. So there's so little product to bring to market. There's so little um capacity for the for, for the world to build new mines that it's a real problem and i can't see how that goes away short of 10 you know 10 years of below required trend expiration spend is going to take at least 10 years to catch up let alone overtake so there are there are massive headwinds to this to this market and and, and, and new production coming on stream on tin it's even worse i mean no one's really had a systematic global exploration plan on tin since 1985 when the tin price crashed due to the collapse of the international tin council so you know you're in a period right now where you're talking about 35 years of below trend exploration on tin you know on, on, on the hard rock side you know there's been alluvial discoveries in Myanmar and, and Indonesia has continued to mine their um their marine assets but they're just uh you know there's a there's a there's a lifetime to these things and once they're gone you have to replace replace them with new discoveries and no one's been looking what did the international tin council do back in its day oh now that's a great story so um i mean go back even even a little bit further because i have a little bit of a family involvement back to this back to the second world war and post it um my great-grandfather was quite involved with uh strategic metal supplies for the allies and setting up of the eventually National Tin Council in 1961. But basically, you come out of the Second World War, you move into the Cold War period. And one of the things that the CIA identified as a huge vulnerability of the Russian economy was access to tin. And you needed tin to make bronze, and you need bronze to make um, gun cannons, and you needed tin, most importantly, for electronics, which was the new fancy thing. So the so the under the guise of the United States Defense Logistics Agency, the CIA basically started buying all of the tin in the world in order to squeeze the Russian economy from an absolutely crucial strategic metal. And over the course of 13 years, between 1947 and 1960, uh, they bought about 350,000 tons of tin on the world market. This is when the world market was maybe 80,000, 100,000 tons a year. So they bought three and a half years of global supply in 13 years. I mean, it's a staggering achievement to have done so and a phenomenal waste of money. Um, it took them 45 years to sell it. They started disposing of the stockpile in, uh, I think, 1961, and they sold it down to the last couple of thousand tons in 2005. Uh, and of course, the, uh, US, the US did? Yeah, the US did. It took them 45 wow. years to sell it out at a massive loss. And you'll love this the, the week they sold the last bit of tin. And effectively, in real terms, the lowest price tin had ever traded at was the same week they, they topped off the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at $147.30, the highest price oil's ever traded at. I think you have to be a government to achieve that level of incompetence. Um, so the attempt to squeeze the Russians basically failed because the Russians sent their army of 20,000 geologists off to Siberia with pretty much the instruction, find tin and don't come back until you have. 
Uh, and inside a couple of years, I'd found the very large Aluba deposits at uh, Pirkaka, they'd found Provorsmaskoya, and by 1960, Russia was self-sufficient in tins so and the squeeze had failed. But all of this activity had caused massive volatility in the tin price, you know, trebled and halved and doubled and halved. And this was creating great stresses on some friendly governments, particularly, you know, Malaysia, uh, beginning to be Indonesia, Thailand there, who were very friendly governments and strategic reasons to the West. So uh, 12 governments got together and they said, right, what we need is long-term price stability on the tin price so we can have predictable incomes for, for our friendly governments in Southeast Asia. And we'll all put a bit of money in, we'll create a strategic buffer reserve on tin and we'll create someone called the buffer stock manager with a mandate to keep the price within a certain range so you've got predictable revenues coming in. And it actually worked quite well for the first 10 or 15 years. Um, the size of the, the group expanded um, and you know each uh, agreement lasted for five years, four years, five years, and they ended up being six of them. And I think there was about 30 uh, member countries by the end of consumers and producers. The problem was the number of producer members always outweighed the number of net consumer members. So they basically kept voting for a higher and higher floor price for the tin, uh, for the tin market. And it became obvious by the early 1980s that this had a lifetime. You can't keep holding a price beyond the economic sensibility. You know, you, there was quotas on the producer nations, which, you know, if the price is too high, they kept busting. And by the sixth agreement, I think Peru and Brazil pulled out of it. And they just kept selling as much tin as they could. And the inevitable consequence was in 1985, the International Tin Council went bankrupt with debts of 890 million pounds and holding 181,000 tons of tin metal. And the tin price between 1985 and 1991 dropped 90% in real terms. And that was the end of looking for tin because suddenly the world was awash with tin metal. Uh, so much money had been lost. There was so much metal around, which had been accumulated over 25 years of running the buffer stock. Uh, that The world didn't need tin. It just needed to basically in that stockpile. And alongside the U.S. Defense Logistics Agency, that stockpile took until about 2005 mm. to be liquidated. And there we got there. The tin price was $3,500 a tonne. And suddenly, the you know, demand it outstripped supply. Stockpiles had gone. And we rallied from that low I think to I think the high was 31, 32,000 um, in around about 2012, uh, and ever since then we've we've come back to a range of between 13 and a half thousand and 25,000. Average price has been 16, 17, 18,000, and that's been pretty comfortable where supply and demand has is uh, effectively matched over the last decade. So. But th so this isn't a this isn't a new story. Like you have been following kind of this supply demand story, even though it's kind of been you know uh, on on even ground for for a few years here. Despite you know the last maybe year, it's really seen a, a really move up uh, with the supply crunch. Uh, but this is a story that has been kind of percolating for a couple years now. Probably, it sounds like the greater part of eight years. Yeah, no, it, it's been going. I mean, look, I, I, when I was running the hedge fund, you know, you research your trades before you put a position on. So I did a huge amount of um, research on, on what had gone on, the history of the market. Uh, I, you know, even though I was born in 1972, I still have memories of the Cornish tin mines closing in the late, like, late 1980s because of the collapse in price. And I'd been underground on a tourist visit on one of them. So it's something that's kind of in the blood and has a bit of family history as well. You know, 2005, when the last little bit of um, US tin got sold, I put on a very, very large tin position. 
I mean, like monster large position. Uh, I made a lot of money out of it. It's a very severely large amount of money out of it. So if you research your page and you look for it, you know, you can find these opportunities. So you know, it still remains uh, a market I follow very closely. I've probably visited, I think I was counting up the other day, 70 or 80 tin projects and tin mines and old mines around the world. Um, I've built a tin mine in Rwanda. Um, I'm currently sat as chairman of Tungsten West, where we've got 400,000 tons of tungsten in the ground and 80,000 tons of tin. I've got a tin project in Germany, which we're about to list, which has got, uh, I think, between all our assets, about 220,000 tons of contained tin. So we've been quietly in the background looking for what's going on today for the last eight or 10 years and accumulating portfolio of exposure in the sure and certain knowledge that the alluvial deposits in the world would run out and the future of new tin supply is going to be hard rock. And you need a much, much higher price than today's current tin price to incentivize those projects to get built. Higher than it is, I mean, because we're talking, what, 35,000 a ton now? Or 25,000, excuse me. Give or take 24, 25,000. Look, I mean, most there aren't that many projects out there in tin space because no one's been looking. Most of them need at least 25,000 to work. And the banks are going to need to see a spot price, in my view, above 35,000 for a couple of years before they will lend to these projects because yeah, the my, two volatile, volatile, you know yeah my eyes my eyes just lit up and my jaw dropped uh, you, you are the living breathing tin man mark i mean you've lived this i have been called that by a few people in london so yeah no look <laughs> it's, it's just good research you know it's all out there on the internet if you want to go and look for it there's books as well um like the tin man is a good book from the 80s about the collapse of the international tin council i'd recommend that to anybody uh, it's a thoroughly riveting read. You wouldn't believe it could be true. I mean, one of the interesting things about that is the collapse of the International Tin Council, and it nearly took down the London Metro Exchange, which nearly took down uh, the world financial system, because when that happened, there was no such thing as clearing houses. So if broker A dealt with broker B, and broker B dealt with broker C, then broker C dealt with broker A, and they're all net square, you actually still had principal-to-principal contracts. So if broker B went bankrupt, both broker A and broker C would go bankrupt because there was no clearinghouse sat in the middle. And of course, if three brick brokers in the metal space went down, it would take down a small couple of banks. And then that would take down a couple of bigger banks and the world financial crisis would have, that we saw in 08, would have looked like a, a storm in a te- you know, teacup by comparison of what actually would have happened. So this is what instigated the world setting up clearinghouses because they realized you had to novate this risk to a, a central um pool of money with no position. So it's, it's quite fascinating when on. And of course, all the governments in the world walked away from the debts of 890 million quid until the British government eventually sort of walked in and did, did the right thing and put some money on the table to sort out the mess. Uh, given the history of tin kind of being this integral part of the United States cold warfare, uh, and then we look at now and the US is really looking at strategic metals, uh, is tin... Does tin need to be a part of that group of metals right now? Oh, I mean, like almost nothing else. I mean, tin does not occur in any economic deposit in continental USA. Okay, there's a little bit, you know, sniffs around small hundred tons of production here or there. But in terms of anything, thousands, tens of thousands of tons, there's nothing. A couple of small deposits in Alaska, a couple of small things in Canada. Uh, they tend to have very bad mineralogy and aren't really worth anything. Because that's the other thing about tin. The only commercially valuable tin mineral is cassiterite. 
And a lot of tin deposits still, you know, even though they might have good grade, are unminable because it's either too fine grained or it contains stannite or velomophite or tin in silicates and not cassiterite. So you really have to understand what you're looking at on mineralogy and metallurgy before you invest in a tin project. But tin, the US is effectively 100% importer. Well, then we get into this conversation about jurisdictional risk and like some of the largest tin producers, you know, are based out of the Congo, Indonesia. uh, I've heard Bolivia has tin deposits. Uh, Those obviously come with jurisdictional risks. You've mentioned uh, tin deposits uh, in the UK, one in Germany. So obviously there's jurisdictional risk in Europe as well when it comes to just permitting and, and, and the legalities of it all, right? So it seems like tin always goes to where it's tough to invest. It, it, it occurs in so few places on the planet. You know, you need a, you need a process of enrichment in granite formation. So, you know, so you're talking about one or two ppm tin background globally, which needs to get enriched to about 50 ppm um, through a geological process in a granite. And then you need a second enrichment from that granite into mineralized structures. So it's pretty rare. Southeast Asia, uh, the risk of origin across Europe, you know, so bits and pieces across France, Spain, Portugal, Germany, UK, it's all the same mineralizing event. Southeast Asia, parts of Australia, um, China and Yunnan province, uh, Peru, Bolivia, I mean, one of the great deposits in Peru, uh, and the DRC, Katanga province, Rwanda, Burundi, you know, along the, along the Great Rift Valley. Outside of that, you're not looking at many places around the world. Brazil a little bit, you know, there just aren't that many great tin districts or um, compared to any other commodity. You know, you, you're talking about, you know, less than less than a dozen locations of significant production. Where is demand coming from now? Mostly, is it coming from like a manufacturing electronics type of industry or, you know, where where where's that demand coming from? So look. Electronics is 50%, 50% plus at the moment. Um, tin plus lead equals solder, and you need solder to join electronic circuit boards together. And now about 15 years ago, and this is another part of the theme back in 2005, is the world was banning lead and electronic solder for health reasons because you don't want people soldering electronic circuit boards together, breathing in the lead fumes. So solder went from basically... Um, you know, tin lead to be in tin, silver, copper, which it massively increased the tin content in solder. There's some substitution going on right now, you know, conducting glues and, um, and better technology. But right now, what seems to be going on, and one of the reasons why tin demand seems to be up so massively, is in a world stuck, stuck in lockdown, people aren't buying clothes or shoes or going out to eat or having to spend money commuting to work. What they're doing is sitting at home and buying more electronic consumables. And that needs printed circuit boards. Uh, and I'm sure you're aware of the, the worldwide dearth of, of chips at the moment. You've got all the world's car manufacturers curtailing production because they can't buy chips. It's the same same reason with, with tin. You know, tin prices has gone rampant because the demand for electronics is through the roof. You, you know, there are other main demands, um, you know, tin chemicals. So tin chemicals are an additive into plastics. They stop them decaying in, in, uh, in sunlight, absolutely unsubstitutable. Uh, tin plate, so as a um, as a thin uh, 75 micron covering on the inside of your steel for your tin cans, for your can of baked beans, unsubstitutable. Um, production of float glass, so all all flat glass is produced by, by something called the Pilkington process, 
or you float molten glass or molten tin. That's unsubstitutable. I mean, it's a really rare commodity in almost everything that you use it for. And it's used in billions and billions of small items, which are almost entirely price inelastic. You know, you've got two grams of tin in your iPhone. You're not going to not buy an iPhone because it's suddenly got 50 cents of tin in it rather than uh, five cents of tin in it. You know, there's utter price inelasticity for almost everything that you use it for. So the upside price potential is pretty, pretty huge on tin. You mentioned earlier commodity super cycle. How, like, if if you were to kind of put on your 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 glass ball and read into it, how much of tin is going to be the driver of this super cycle that we have just started? Look, it, it, it's across the board. You know, it's driven by supply side considerations, but no one's been looking. No one's been finding, no one's been building new mines. It's driven by above trend growth, driven by green energy, uh, new technologies, electric cars, the world going that way. It's driven by the next 2 billion people behind, you know, the last cycle people talked about the BRICS. I'm a believer in the next 2 billion, you know, 200 million people in Nigeria, 200 million people in Pakistan, those sort of countries which are all basically want to copy what China's done over the last 30, 40 years. Um, it's a perfect storm. On the supply side, demand side, um, you know, I'm also a believer that uh, inflation is coming. You know, 22% of all the dollars ever created were created last year. You don't need much inflation to kickstart this. The, as I said earlier, the median funds allocation to commodity globally is zero. You know, we suddenly get a few hundred billion dollars trying to chase metals. There's no home for it. The only way is much, much higher prices. And if the supply isn't there, the price has to go to a level where demand is destroyed. And I say on tin, the price in elasticity is incredibly high because you're not going to stop consuming, you know, a few cents of tin in a washing machine or a uh, or an iPhone or whatever because it's suddenly now times the price. So look, the upside potential is massive. There will be a supply response. Um, you know, a lot of you know, forty percent of the world's tin supply comes from what I would consider very small scale. And artisanal producers in Indonesia, DRC, uh, Myanmar, you know, non-institutional investable type uh, type production. And yeah, particularly in places like the DRC, these guys can switch from gold to gold to copper to cobalt to tin, depending on what the price is. They just move around the country to where the deposits are and where they can make the most money. So there will be some short-term supply response. Same in Indonesia, but the structural issues I think are going to over, over, you know overall those short-term supply responses demand is up supplies down to flat a stable future uh, can you leave, give our listeners something maybe tangible or something to, to, to kind of take with them as far as investment um you know what are some opportunities where can people listening maybe look for <clears throat> excuse me for 10 equities to place their money so there's only really there's only really sort of two listed producers in the Western world uh, on Western exchanges. So you've got Metals X in Australia, runs the Redison mine. It's a grand old lady of a mine. It's been running for you know, 150 years, still going, good grade, deep underground. Um, and now they've divested their copper assets as a company. It's a pure, pretty much a pure tin production play. And then you've got Alphamin in the DRC, mining one of the world's truly great mineral deposits. Um, you know, 4%, 5% tin, you know, off the charts in terms of grade. But with that comes, you know, being in the DRC, 
and potential risks of the higher the tin price goes, perhaps the security situation for them uh, and predictability becomes a little bit more problematic. So there's not a lot of places to put your money. You can look at the explorers, but you know a lot of those as assets have um, have reasons why they haven't been built yet. So it's pretty difficult to, to find uh, places to invest. Um, we will be listing our tin company in Germany um, in the next couple of quarters. We're working on that very quickly now. We want to hit the, hit our stride and give people a, an opportunity to, to buy our shares. We're quite excited about that. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the asset. The asset is called Tellerhauser. It was drilled out on a 50-50 joint venture between the Russians and the East Germans over the course of about 20 years. Um, it's in East Germany. There you go. Hardly surprising. And they were just getting ready to mine it in 1990 when the Berlin Wall came down, and then it sort of got forgotten about. So we picked it up as an asset in 2014. It's had a huge amount of money spent on it by the exploration teams back in there, say the Soviet days. Um, there's something like 65 kilometers of underground development. It was all drilled from underground. There's two internal 400 meter vertical shafts of ventilation. There's a nine kilometer adit that goes into the side of the mountain. And there's about two and a half thousand um, holes into this thing. It's, it's, it's been beautifully drilled out. Uh, and we're in the process of, uh, we've just completed a PFS before December, and we're about to uh, raise a lot of money to complete the uh, DFS this year, looking to get it into production within, uh, depending on permitting, within two and a half, three years. So I still think we'll be in time to hit this cycle. Um, we've got a massive inventory of tin in the ground. That's just our first project. We also own the Gottesberg project there, which is another 100,000 tons of contained tin, you know, sort of lower grade, but um, you know, around 0.4, 0.5%. But uh, it works nicely at $25,000 tin. So we've got a lot of metal in the ground, and we're looking for a lot, you know, hopefully trying to generate a lot of excitement for the asset when we list it. Uh, Mark, we, we promised we were going to spend a lot of time talking about tin, but I do want to kind of provide a last kind of uh, overarching uh, conversation here about just the general base metals complex, because you mentioned earlier, uh, tin is a big story. It's an important story, but uh, it's not the only story when it comes to a supply and demand crunch here. What what other metals um, are we are you looking at that potentially could have similar effects? Listen, I, I personally only have three positions in metals right now. I'm in tin, I'm in copper, and I'm in tungsten. And that's just as much a reflection of my where I have investments and where I see the best opportunities. Some of that's asset-related, some of it's um, metal-related. Uh, the tungsten positions, because we bought the, uh, the Hemmerden mine in Devon 18 months ago, uh, which is the old Wolf Minerals mine. They spent about £200 million on it. Uh, we picked it up for £5 million out of bankruptcy. And in the last year and a half, we've redone a DFS. In fact, we've just completed the definitive feasibility study today. Uh, and we're out to raise um, development capital on that. Uh, I'm very bullish on the tungsten price, um, but probably a year or two behind tin because there's still a substantial above ground stock. But it's, uh, I mean, it's more strategic than tin for the Western world because 80% of primary tin, uh, tungsten supply is mined in China. So it's, it's one of the levers they hold, you know, alongside rare earths. Uh, it's one of the levers they just hold over the Western world if they wanted to cut off supply. So I like that asset very, very much. And then I'm on the board of a company called Meridian Mining, which has a copper asset in Brazil. Um, I like the asset very, very much indeed as well. It's a VMS style, which means volcogenic massive sulfide. 
Um, it's got a historic joke resort, historic resource on it. We're in the process of turning that into a joke resource. Uh, there's a couple of announcements coming out to the market today. I would look out for. Uh, I think that's uh, that's a share that um, I'm very happy owning as well. Mark, uh, this has been just an absolutely fascinating conversation. I, I personally have learned an incredible amount. So I appreciate you sharing the story, uh, the information, and just a lot of this incredible research that you have obviously uh, taken upon yourself for many years now. Uh, it's just, I, I hope we can have you back on the show sometime later this year and see how it's all playing out. Well, I hope so. And I hope it's not just a cry at me because I've been so wrong. I hope it's uh, to join in my enthusiasm that we've all been so right in the in the space. Uh, Mark, uh, how can people, if they have follow-up questions, they can always email me, Trevor at clearcreekdigital.com. I'm happy to send those off to you as well. But if people want to follow you or you maybe have some follow-up questions directly for you, how can they reach out? Yeah, I've been on Twitter for 10 days and I've somehow picked up 1,300 followers which is kind of surprising me. Um, so, you know, at ME Thompson 72, if you message me on there, I'm pretty good at getting back to people. Um, I'll answer generic questions. I don't give investment advice. I'm happy to talk about my own investments and why I hold them, subject to Meridian being a listed company and me being an insider. So I can't, uh, I can't talk about anything which is non-public information. Uh, but I'm happy to talk generically about the markets as well. I'm, I'm actually rather enjoying it. And uh, the feedback I've had from the people who've, very kindly followed me has been amazing as well. I think uh, tapping into a scene of people who actually have done their research and understand uh, the difference between real metal in the ground as a store of value uh, and some of the other places that people choose to invest today. You know, you want to buy a 20-year German government bond with a negative yield. Uh, the only way you can make money is if someone pays a higher price for you than, than that. I mean, good luck with that as an investment investment philosophy. All right, Mark, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much again, and uh, have yourself a great rest of the week. Thanks, Trevor. I've enjoyed it. And we are back here with our Mining Stock Daily 10 Special. Yeah, that's right. We're going to continue our conversation speaking just basically solely about the metal of tin and all its dynamics lately. Uh, I am welcoming to the podcast for the first time a new acquaintance, somebody I have followed online for a little bit. Uh, he goes by the Twitter handle EDARK, that's capital E-D-A-R-K, number nine, number four. Uh, he hails from King's College in London, uh, and his real name is, and I hopefully I don't pronounce this too much, email, Emil Bagge, who's Swedish, correct? You're Swedish. I'm Swedish. That's good enough. <laughs> good enough. Good enough. I'm sorry. I, par please pardon my uh, United States, uh, <laughs> my U.S. pronunciation on many things. Yeah, I apologize. It's quite difficult to say that, actually. Most people get it very wrong, <laughs> but I'm quite used to yeah. it. Okay. Well, I, I'll, I'll take a little bit. Of, I didn't completely butcher it. Um Emil, tell tell me about uh, you know a little bit of your background. Uh, you you you're actually a graduate student at King's College, studying computer science. Uh, 
but tell us why have you kind of fallen into this uh, commodities and metal space here where you're deciding to invest in well thanks for having me to begin with it's quite an honor and um i started actually investing rather recently to most people and like using 2017 precisely when uh, the bitcoin bubble was at its peak that's when i came in and couldn't stop myself from buying in and FOMOing. And then I obviously experienced the crash and got pretty salty. So I decided, you know, well, maybe I can try out stocks then. And uh, in my mind, I've always been interested in green technology, you know, like wind, uh, wind energy or electric vehicles and stuff. But I figured that instead of trying to chase Tesla or any company, I figured that you would need a lot of metal that doesn't really exist in this world yet to be able to build all of these things. So I started digging, because uh, if you ask any computer scientist, they will know that they all quite get a graduate in uh, Google Kung Fu, as they say. <laughs> so I started digging, researching about it, and I was initially only in copper, because I was like, oh man, you need copper for literally everything. Why haven't anyone thought about it? What's like a genius? And then I started realizing there was a whole community about there on like Twitter, on CEO.ca, where people were metal and commodity enthusiasts, because normally you only hear like, you know, tech stocks, Bitcoin, and all those typical stuff. But it was very difficult to find people that shared my interest in like trying to find copper and then go from there to other commodities as well. Have you done any kind of just ruminating about your approach to your studies in computer science and how does that maybe sway how you do your due diligence when it comes to investing your capital? Yeah, well, as I am a student, we often have to do uh, empirical analysis. We have to do our you know, research and actually find proof. So I often find myself being data-driven to most part. Like I want to see, not just hear opinions about why one thing will happen, but actually see and back it up with some data or some studies about it to sign correlations. Like, you know, finding out that inflation and all the macro stuff ties into the metals and see why that is and try to figure out how it will impact my uh, investments. It's like one thing I find very interesting, just the macro things. It's quite easy to fool yourself, think you're a genius, that you're like, oh, I thought that, um, I saw that this thing would happen and then inflation connected this to that event, but um, it's so much com more complex than it, that it's like, takes up the entire data. I can just look through news, see all these things happening and just try and figure out what could happen. But I find it very interesting. It's like some sort of game to me, actually. I think most people might find that as well. Uh, we, we're going to talk about tin, but before we kind of specifically get into your your thesis about the metal. Can you kind of walk us through how you do your analysis and some of your research? What's the first things you look at when it comes to say supply and demand when in the metals complex? Well, initially I use Google. That's essentially what I do. I Google, I find articles, I find research papers. I find, uh, I go to Twitter, social media. I try to find people that seem to know what they're talking about. And just go through the entire process of finding all the information I can, finding different opinions, trying to form my own view by either asking questions to certain people that I 
have been uh, made acquaintance with online on Twitter, as you might know, and you just do the entire process. And then I figure out, oh, I have all of this information, I have all the pieces of the puzzle, and then I make up my mind what I want to do. So that's what kind of led me into TIN, as you mentioned before. So when was the kind of light bulb moment for TIN? What made you look at TIN? Well, this was during the summer um, in July, I think, because initially I wasn't too interested in TIN in itself. I wasn't really aware of it. I just had a friend of mine that I was that was like an experienced resource investor who liked Alphamin resources. So he was quite a fan of it. And it was just trading. It was so cheap back in July as well. It was like, I don't remember, 0. 0.5, like 15 cents Canadian exchange. And they had like a record uh, quarter. They went so much money, but nobody, no one cared. <laughs> it had like no volume at all. Nobody even bat an eye on it. So I was like, oh, well, it's a cheap base metal player. You can buy some. And then I started doing my research from there. Like I had a company. I was like, well, I wonder what's what's up with tin, you know? Like why, why is it something happening here? And then I found a lot of in Twitter mostly because there really isn't that much out there. Like there's like near no articles or no one back then at least that were talking about tin or that had any information. It's like very small, very small sector with very few analysis. So I went to Twitter and found like Trader Pamplona, as you might know, a handle who had posted so much about tin specifically. And you've been going on and on about how bullish it was. And I got convinced, <laughs> essentially, as I just kept reading, I kept doing my own research to see if it was true what he said and just got incredibly bullish. And I felt like, oh, wow, I've actually found something and I'm actually quite early. I should take a position and just go buy even more because it's so bullish. And then it all played out pretty well until now. So... What are some? What were the early signs? Was it more of the dwindling supply crunch that was hitting? Uh, you know, was it just the movement in, you know, the price itself? I mean, I'm speaking about the metal, not necessarily alpha mm. men, um, but you know, the macro fundamentals of the metal itself uh, last summer. You know, what was something you were watching that uh, now that we look, you know, six to eight months from now, you know, that really kind of came to fruition that proved your thesis? Well, it has been a historical bear market. Like it wasn't a bear cycle to begin with. It had been, tin has been very low priced. It has started to go up slightly, but not a lot. And then there was this whole movement, like inventories were nearly zero. There was no inventory to supply the market and be like some, to keep volatility down. Uh, there were so few actual producers out there. Like most of them are in uh, China, Indonesia, Myanmar, and Republic Congo, which is uh, Alpha Min and uh, South America. But it was all concentrated to certain players. And most of them had issues with, like they had to cut production and they, because the prices were too low and the easily mineable supply is already gone, which has kind of resulted in this perfect storm you're brewing. And then you also started to hear about semiconductors a bit later, like the world needs semiconductors. It's not enough to go around. This is a metal for the future because we all need electronics. And I realized, oh, wait, but half of the use of tin, the complete demand of the world, goes to solder, which is what you use to glue together all these ships. So if semiconductors is very much needed, 
that obviously team should also be very much needed. It's like the one plus one equals two <laughs> equation I made. And I was like, oh, holy shit, this is so bullish. And uh, yeah, so it just all came together perfectly, really. I was but, uh, quite lucky. We continue to hear this dialogue from the auto manufacturers that they have to cut back on production because there's not enough semiconductor chip supply. Mm -hmm. And part of me is like, well, is there no chip supply because <laughs> there's no metal supply to make these chips? Is that is that a valid argument? Well, not really, because the the supply and demand for semiconductors is mostly due to the there isn't enough semiconductors out there and manufacturers simply can't make enough of them. But due to this fact that they can't make enough of uh, the semiconductors and its implication to solder demand and how much electronics actually consumed, you kind of linked them together. But it wasn't because tin was out, they couldn't make them, they could always make them. But if they ramp up semiconductor, ramp up semiconductor production, it will lead to more and more tin being needed and thus more demand for tin. And hopefully we have seen that in the US, they have made like, uh, President Biden have taken it up that he might write some sort of uh, article, uh, presidential order about this to try and start manufacturing in the US again or something like that. And if they start doing this more and more, then it will in inevitably also increase the demand for tin. But it's, that's, it's not that, semiconductor, the shortage of semiconductor is due to tin. It's more like due to the shortage of semiconductors, tin demand will also rise because it means that so much more electronics is needed in the world. That the, it's like the major semiconductor companies have backlogs like 12 months out. It's not an easy solution for this. It's not gonna go away anytime soon. It's not gonna get built up until they actually start producing more, which is easier said than done. Yeah, absolutely. And so on the supply side, so it's all, we're, we're seeing more demand for tin. We're going to see more demand for tin because uh, production demands it. But on the supply side, there just isn't enough tin onto the market to meet that demand, is there? No, there isn't enough at this price, I suppose, is the correct way to say it. Because a lot of tin comes from artisanal and alluvial miners, which is amateur miners, basically, you could call them from Indonesia and Congo. So once they try and ramp up and trying to get it, then they could try and meet the, the demand. But the problem is they've already done so for years and the supply has gone down year on year. So all the easy tin, easy mineable, which is close to the surface is mostly gone. And we've seen that by the large producers as well, that it costs more to produce because they need to go further down and it's more difficult to produce. They can't just come back online and uh, get it easily. They need the price to be at the right level. And it's around 25,000 was they said before they could ramp up again. But even then, it's just, they want it slightly further. And there aren't any projects, major projects coming online either to supply the market because they need even higher prices like 30,000 uh, uh, 30, per kiloton. Tin mm -hmm. prices. And where are we? Where are we at this week? We're like twenty five. Is that right? Well, you should have asked me yesterday. <laughs> yesterday <laughs> we were, I don't know, twenty eight thousand, and now we're at twenty five or twenty four. I think we're right now. It's kind of crashed, <laughs> um, sadly. But I think the fundamental is still the same. It was mostly due to 
is macro. China tried to limit speculation. And then there's also the seasonality of things that's really important. That Indonesia, as I mentioned, one of the larger producers, um, they are coming out of monsoon season now. So there will come supply. Now, when there isn't floodings and rains, they will come back to start supply the market. But the, the fact of the matter is it simply isn't enough. They can't produce enough at this price. And it would just happen over and over again that the, the inventories will run out, prices will spike, and then Ali will come and try to supply the market and we will go on and on until some project has to come back. Some project get funded or some uh, of the larger players start ramping up production once the price is right until we reach a balance. So which companies have the opportunity to ramp up production and really continue to meet this demand? I mean, where will the, if when a stabilization stabilization of the tin market happens, where will it come from, do you think? Um, well, so that's a good question. Um, it's very difficult to say. Um, but uh, there was this guy called Mark Thompson that was like some very experienced tin trader gave his point of view and said that prices need to be around 30,000 per ton to actually stabilize that, the futures of three-month contract for team should be at 30,000 per ton to actually bring forth the production and projects needed to supply the market and future demand. And we're not obviously there yet. And even at those levels, it's like Indonesia starting to run out of the good stuff. China has also stopped producing. That's why they also needed to import because the Chinese state wanted to create a buffer, like an inventory of 40,000 ton. So it's obviously that the Chinese, the Yunnan tin, can't supply the market itself, even if you try to ramp up. And then there's Alphamin, which has the, they are drilling for another complex to pay, perhaps become even a bigger producer. But I don't think it's enough, really. We need higher prices, essentially. So... 30,000 would just basically be a foundation. A foundation, but a floor. We need to sustainable level to reach 30,000. And then perhaps projects can come out. But even then, it might not even be possible because then you need the funding and then it might not even be that profitable. You might need higher. But it's very difficult to say. Very difficult to say. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about jurisdictional risk when it comes to uh, investing your capital in some of these 10 equities. You mentioned Alphamin out of uh, Congo. You mentioned countries such as Myanmar, obviously a um, uh, <laughs> not a, not a great place to be right now. Yeah. Uh, Indonesia continues to have jurisdictional risks. That's historic. Uh, places like Bolivia continues to have jurisdictional risk, although we have seen uh, some bigger, uh, you know, legendary companies go in there and be really successful in Bolivia. But how come tin always has to be in these countries that are uh, a little bit difficult to work with, I guess, you know, for <laughs> lack of a better term? I don't know. It just felt like coming up there, I guess. <laughs> uh, it's rather unfortunate, I guess. I have no idea why that's the case. It's just unfortunate. But uh, that's why you kind of have to take it into account when you evaluate the companies. Like you have a discount, I suppose. Like, for example, Alphamin, right? It's trading extremely cheap. I think it's trading at a P number of under four at the moment, nearly three. And even at those levels, even at the... They have been there for a multitude of years. They have worked with the community. They have uh, created a mine where no one thought it was possible. Because in the middle of the jungle of in Eastern Congo as well, where there's the most violence, and they just managed to create the mine and they managed to come to production. So they have obviously experience. 
And unless you think there's a new civil war breaking out and, whole, and it all goes crazy, then I think it's worth buying even that the, that the risk obviously is there given the circumstances. But there are a few. There are actually in Cornwall Hall in England, um, Cornish metals that are trying to drill and reopen an old mine. But this underground mining, they need to also pump up a lot of water. So they need the prices to be right. That's the problem, that the prices are simply too low for new projects to come out. That's just how it is. Mm. Well, that's but that's a similar story that we hear for a lot of other metals, right? Like we mm. heard it for copper for a number of years. We've heard it uh, for metals such as like zinc and nickel. Uh, cobalt had a shining moment a couple of years back. Maybe that's coming up and coming back again. I know that you're putting in some of your money into those metals as well. Uh, but it's this ongoing story. We just need metal prices to be higher. We just need metal prices to be higher. Yeah, that's just. Uh nature things because we had like currently we're in a bubble what i think is a bubble with tech stock and tech evaluation trading at insane multiples while all these value stocks as you might call them are trading at like maybe single digits the large cap might trade at double digit but most of them single digits and they are trading like like there's no tomorrow but hopefully if inflation starts to run rampant and if we have need a green revolution, as they say in the US, that we need to that they need to re-up the infrastructure, electrify it, and then try and create all its EVs that require a lot of tin, they need more than double than regular cars, a lot of copper, I don't know how many times more copper they need, but I think it's like more than twice at least. Then they need to raise prices because the demand rises and the price the price will rise to bring up the, the supply that they need. This is how it's going to be. And that's why I'm very bullish for most of these metals, because I think that's, there's no way around it, basically. There's no way around it. Uh, email, I've been following the conversation about tin for a couple months now. Uh, one thing that's always been a struggle for me, and thank God for people like you online and on Twitter to help feed me this information. Um, but the informa- But finding information, just basic information about the metal of tin is very challenging to like, you know, just uh, find and, and keep track of. So could you give us some pointers of places that uh, our listeners could go to, to keep track of, of the price action of the metal? Yeah, absolutely. Like, like I mentioned before, I personally, the moment I had the liked about moment was when I went to Twitter, believe it or not, when I saw the handle trade Pamplona, who was the one who, I've been writing about tin. I don't know how long he's been writing about tin, but for, I think it's more than one year at least. He's been going on and on about how bullish tin is and how the inventory, how low the inventory has become and how skewed the supply demand is. So that's what I've begun. And then it's simply a few people there with the tin hashtag on Twitter that talk to each other, that help each other out, they write about it. And that's just the most of the information you get because there simply isn't that many people. It's not many eyes on tin um, and then there might be if you google you might find articles there's some of them that follow the tin price like fastmarkets.com i think they're called like a news page site that has like daily bulletins about tin but then it's also just articles that you see sometimes pop up like from routers from a guy named andy home has been writing about it as well it's been coming more and more people have got an eyes on it because they had a crazy price action recently. 
like a few weeks ago. We should have had this conversation then, so we could all be so happy. But uh, then it was like more and more people sort of noticed, wait, what this little metal rallying crazy levels, like what's happening here? And then we started seeing more and more people actually notice it and join us. But I think Twitter is really the best tool. It's a social media to talk to others, uh, retail investors and professional analysis that you share information for free. It's such a good, good web page, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, last question for you. Uh, other, we've talked a lot about tin, obviously. This is the tin special. Um, you know, you are putting your money in other metals like cobalt and nickel. Uh, but are you doing any research? What might be the next tin, the next supply squeeze that nobody knows about yet? The next supply squeeze. <laughs> I'm actually pretty bullish rare earth, believe it or not, because it's this whole geopolitical climate has, in my view, made it seem like uh, there's more nationalism on the rise, like China versus US. And it's quite common knowledge that China has most of the rare earth production. That's just how it is. But it's not really rare earth, is it? It's like it exists everywhere. It's just that you need it's very small amounts everywhere. So you need to take a lot of uh, earth and a large mine and it's very dirty and it's harmful for the environment. So they put it in China where no one in the West cares. But this seems to change. And we've seen companies, for example, there was a graphite company that got support funding from the US government as a strategic asset, and it just flew to the moon. And I've been following a few small cap stocks in there that I find very interesting. Um, but I haven't done enough research on it, and it's still quite early, I guess. It used it was like another rare boom before, but nothing happened then. So hopefully history doesn't repeat itself, <laughs> famous last words. But I think there is a lot of opportunity there still, um, because I think this won't really change. The, this whole US versus China is here to stay. Yeah, I, I think you're right there. Um, uh, Emil, I appreciate your time. It's a pleasure to welcome you on to Mining Stock Daily uh, for your curtain call. Uh, could you uh, leave us with maybe an idea of how people listening might be able to find you or reach you for any follow-up questions that I may have missed? Absolutely. Well, they can find me on Twitter at the handle edoc94. Um, I use Twitter for fun, basically. Um, so you can shoot me an email, shoot me a message if you like. Um, <laughs> I'm not an expert at anything really, but I'm, I gladly answer anything I get. Very good. Uh, and congratulations and keep up the good work with your degree in computer science from King's College. And uh, that's, uh, that's extraordinary for you. I'm very proud of you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, all right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, that wraps up our episode, our 10 special. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any follow-up questions for me or any of our guests, feel free to shoot me an email, trevor at Clear Creek Digital, and I will try to get those questions to our guests uh, as quickly as possible and get you answered right away. I look forward to following up with both Emil and Mark here in the coming months because uh, this tin story isn't done. Uh, it seems like there's more to come. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care of yourself. Be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decision.